Hey there, welcome to JobsCast. Thank you for tuning in. You were just listening to Lava Lamp by Jonah Tolchin, today's guest. Jonah is a great guy, very talented musician. Go buy the record, go see him live. Please support him however you can. I don't know about you, but I generally skip past podcast intros. So I decided that I would spare you a glut of language up front. If you're interested in hearing my thoughts and learning more about the music industry, I've appended an epilogue to the end of this program. Okay, I hope you enjoy my conversation with the musician Jonah Tolchin. Jonah, welcome to JobsCast. Thanks so much for having me, man. So let's start off with the roots. What were some formative listening experiences? What albums were you exposed to as a kid? And I'm also curious about the first time you heard live music. Hmm. Man, so I'll go backwards. The first time I heard live music was at Tanglewood. My parents loved going up to the Berkshires when I was a kid. And we saw James Taylor on the 4th of July. I remember it being really loud because of the fireworks and also <laughs> just like a, a rock concert, like Steve Gadd is on drums. It was kind of weird in retrospect. There was like a random woman behind me that just like put her hands over my ears because she could tell I was like freaking out. <laughs> How old were you at the time? I was probably like six or something. Okay, you're pretty small. Maybe five or six, yeah. yeah. And then in terms of records and artists that I would listen to growing up, I actually did a musical autobiography assignment in high school, and I had to dig back. And one of the first songs I put was Nick Knack, Paddywhack, but the Bob Dylan version <laughs> of that song. Nick Knack, Paddywhack. And uh, so, you know, I, my parents would play a lot of folk music and kids music and stuff like that. And I remember they would have vinyl records around. Um, I think it was just as that was phasing out. And there's a few that I remember in particular, like Bill Withers live at Carnegie Hall. I remember picking up the Leon Redborn record cover with like the Warner Brother frog on the front. What else? We listened to cassettes when I was a kid and we had the cream of Clapton on cassette, which was essentially like a best of with some Derek and the Domino stuff. You had like Layla and White Room cream and then some just Clapton stuff. So those are a few things that I, I remember. Yeah, cool. It brings me back to an activity that I liked to do when I was pretty young, which was wake up early on a Saturday morning before anyone else was up and go downstairs and listen to the radio and wait for songs that I loved and record them, you know, with like mm. the play button and the pause button at the same time. You press them yep. in and that records on the tape. Did you ever do that? Man, I I don't think I did it from the radio but i remember using that function like with my cousin to record weird rap mixes so is your mixtape out there somewhere <laughs> yeah it's on it's on world star <laughs> when did you start playing i started playing for the first time i want to say when i was like eight or nine but i didn't stick to it because i was playing guitar and my hands weren't really big enough yet so i stopped and then I picked it up a few years later when I was, I want to say, 13. Did you play any other instruments growing up? Not really. It was really just guitar. I started because I had and have a best friend named Dan. We went to preschool together, and we just did everything together growing up. And when he started playing guitar, I got jealous, so I had <laughs> to play it also. <laughs> and so it was really because of, partly because of that that I started playing, and then uh, just just totally fell in love with it. And I played harmonica 
as well. That was like a year afterwards. Now I play a bit of lap steel and some banjo and I can kind of mess around with anything with, with strings. And I enjoy playing drums, but I'm definitely not a drummer. Gotcha. I don't know if you know this, Jonah, but the first time I ever played music for people I didn't know, it was still in my house, funnily enough, at the, I, at the George Wyatt house. Yeah, yeah, I, I opened for you. I played like five songs that I wrote. Yeah. And then you came on and your performance was incandescent that night. I was, uh, I mean, your guitar playing man is on, is truly on another level. Thanks. And so I, it was a question I was going to ask you. I was extremely nervous. You know, luckily I was in my living room. It's a friendly <laughs> environment. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I've been writing songs on and off for years. And it got to the point where I was like, all right, I'll, you know, I'll try to share this with people. But for whatever set of reasons, like the the talent, the momentum, the passion, they weren't converging for me to the point where I wanted to just keep going and going and going. And a lot of people that I've talked to, they're like, well, another option never even presented mm. itself to me. I wanted it to keep you know, playing my instrument and writing songs. But I'm curious about when you kind of crossed that threshold from loving playing guitar, doing it a lot, getting good at it, to being like, all right, I'm going to start sharing this with audiences. Mm. Yeah, that's a great question. First, I want to just say that I do remember that performance. <laughs> and I also believe, was Dan Blakesley there? Oh, yeah. Dan was there, yeah. too. Yeah. Yeah. Great so I, I, that was really fun. Um, yeah. So... To your question, I think it happened pretty early, to be honest. I went to a private high school in New Hampshire after being dismissed from public high school here in New Jersey. And Do tell what happened. <laughs> <laughs> well, the long and the short of it is I just got in a lot of trouble. I was just okay. a rebellious kid and defiant and everything else. But when I went to New Hampshire, I just remember being a freshman again because I started like the next school year. And I had been playing guitar for about one year, and that year I had a couple of really informative experiences. The one that's probably I talk about the most was meeting Ronnie Earl, a great blues guitar player up in New England, who's played with, you know, we were talking about Eric Clapton. He's sat in with Eric Clapton and B.B. King and Steve oh, wow. Rapon, like you name it, he's played with them. And he's kind of a legend. Um, I didn't know who he was, but this is a whole other story. I won't get into the details, but I met him in a music store and he heard me play and he invited me on stage to play with him in, uh, at Tupelo Music Hall in Londonderry, New Hampshire. And that was my first experience playing in front of people. And it was freshman year, like one year after I had started playing the guitar. And being on that stage and just having that validation through this older, respected artist really made me think early on. I was like a 14 or 15-year-old. I wanted to do this. And, and really from that point forward, I had my mind set on it. Like I, I knew I wasn't going to take the SATs. I was just going to go and do music after high school. That's and amazing. That's, that's what I did, yeah. Let's zoom in on that experience how did you feel minutes before you went on stage oh man what do you remember feeling about your playing while you were playing and how did you feel afterward well first of all you know I'm a pretty skinny guy I was wearing like a triple x t-shirt for some reason like I don't know <laughs> I think I had maybe seen videos of blues guys wearing really big clothes 
Yeah. And I was like, I have, I'm going to wear this huge shirt that I got from this like 350 pound friend of mine and I'm this like backwards newsboy hat and my braces. I looked ridiculous and it's pretty funny in retrospect. There's actually a video of this that nobody has knows about because Ronnie introduced me as Noah on stage. He just like didn't know. I don't know. It, it doesn't matter. It, but he like <laughs> glanced at some of the letters in your name and came up with Noah. Exactly. And so there's a video somewhere on YouTube. It's like Noah in parentheses, Jonah <laughs> playing with Ronnie Earl or something like that. <laughs> but I just remember I had my guitar. I want to say it was a Fender, like a Mexican Fender, but it might have been a Squire um, with like a tortoise shell pickguard. And I was holding it. And then somehow like I got up on stage. I was so nervous. Somehow, like, I didn't use that guitar because he, like, gave me one of his guitars to use mm. that I, like, didn't really know what it felt like. It was my first time playing it. Oh, my gosh. And That's I was like a like, nightmare. You get really comfortable as a young musician playing your instrument, and then someone's like, just kidding. Here's another thing you could play right while you get on stage. Exactly. And afterwards, someone was like, that was really good, but next time you should play your guitar. <laughs> and I also remember it being really fun. I didn't quite get some of the cues that they gave me. And like when it was time to get off, I was just like so awestruck by the whole thing. I think I like froze and he had to like yell at me to like get off stage or something. <laughs> so while it was really great, it was also kind of scary. I was just being thrown into the pit really and yeah. figuring stuff out. It gave me a lot of confidence after that having done it yeah it's not an easy age to be alive in general let alone yeah. to be getting on stage with a legend so i feel like we've kind of inductively maybe found the answer to this question but it sounds like stage fright has never been much of an issue for you well actually i used to be really really afraid of public speaking performing anything when i was mm. in school i refused to stand up in front of the class and do anything for, for years until high school, basically. It was just the scariest. And like an elementary school as well, because we had at the school I went to poetry week and the storytelling week where we learned a poem and had to say it in front of the class or like a story. I was just so terrified. And then we had all school singing and I would always just lip sync So because they made <laughs> us sing. So if I just move my mouth, I was like, they won't notice and then later at the same high school in New Hampshire, the first time I actually sang, because that's a different thing. Playing guitar for the first time in front of people is one thing, but singing in front of people oh, yeah. is a totally other thing. And I just oh, remember yeah. doing that like at a coffee house. And I remember my voice cracking at least a few times in the song. I think I sung Hard Times by Ray Charles. And I think that... After I just did it, I got the balls to do it. It got a lot easier. But even still, man, it depends on what it is. For example, like I just got really nervous this past Friday because I played a hometown release show and I knew there was going to be like dozens of people that I know personally there. And the whole tour, you know, 20 shows before that, not nervous once. But for whatever reason, just mm. knowing that all those people that I knew were going to be there, it just... It yeah. got to be. Yeah, that's a kind of bizarre 
phenomenon, isn't it? Somehow the intimacy of being around people who love you and know you well, you would think that it would have the opposite effect of making you completely at ease, but perhaps there's something about the density of closeness and intimacy that's somehow overwhelming versus playing for strangers. You could have more of a don't give a shit attitude. Totally. I mean, I remember hearing a story about Warren Haynes from Government Mule and Alm Brothers, and he was doing some kind of a clinic at UR Mercalcoin Injection Airplanes, like guitar mm-hmm. school. And I think there was like 20 people there. I don't know how many people, but it wasn't a lot. And I heard through the grapevine that that was one of the most terrifying things that he ever did because of just the intimacy, like you're talking about, of just playing in front of like 20, 30 people as opposed to these stadiums that he's used to performing at. I thought that was pretty interesting. That's a great anecdote. I don't know why I know this, but I, I feel like I remember registering in my head the night that we shared the Kitchen Sessions stage that I was a couple years older than you. Were you born around 90? Are you like 30-ish? Yeah, 92. 92. Okay, cool. Yeah. I just turned 30 in July. Oh, nice. Happy birthday. Thanks. <laughs> How are your 30s going? Oh, man, it's great. I'm loving it. Nice. So you've been a musician for 15 odd years. How has being a musician changed your relationship to being a fan of music? It's a great question. Honestly, it's definitely been double-edged. I could answer it from either edge, but I'll start with the one that's sort of more on the negative side, which is that when you're so in a field for so long, you start to become aware of the underbelly of things, but also just the experience of perhaps things not going the way you wanted to or being frustrated by the way that the music industry works or whatever. Sometimes for me, it's made me not even want to listen to music at times. I wouldn't say that I listen to that much music. I'm starting to a bit more, but this is not exactly answering the question, but in terms of just being a fan of music in 2022, regardless of who you are. For me, the streaming, just having all of that music available makes it almost harder to know what to listen to because there's so much of it. And it's so easy to just listen to two seconds of something and write it off and be like, oh, I don't like the way that sounds. And then listen to something else and something else and just kind of keep throwing stuff to the wind, not really registering or processing music as it perhaps could be processed or should be processed. I had a conversation with my drummer, Michael Bosco, in the car, and it was one of the best conversations I've had about this topic in a long time. I was trying to ask him, like, how do you listen to music? What do you listen to? And he was like, I don't stream music. I own all of my music. And I said, what do you mean? He was like, well, the iTunes music store. And I was like, man, that's like circa, you know, whatever. (laughs) And he was like, I don't like there to be anything in between me and my music. I like Uh, to have, you know, this direct relationship with it. It's like that he he has control of it. But also he's like, I'll buy a record. And then because I've invested in that record, I will listen to it. And if I don't like it, I'll listen to it again. And he said nine times out of 10, he'll love the record, even if he didn't like it the first time. That was really inspiring to me because I'm like the opposite. If I hear something that I don't like, and I think this is the way a lot of people are, especially people in the music business, 
you hear something you don't like, sometimes you even write that person off as an artist. Like you'll just hear one snippet of a song and then you're like, screw this. I don't care because there's so much music out there that if I don't like this three seconds, then I'll find some other three seconds that will hit me sooner and better. And I'll just do that instead. And I think that that's like really unhealthy. I have ADHD. I think that we probably live in a somewhat ADHD world when it comes to just stimulation and art and accessibility to it. So being able to have all that access, it's confusing. I think it's confusing for me. I I imagine it's confusing for some other people. And on the other hand, you have every song ever that you can listen to whenever you want. And that's amazing. I definitely feel you on a lot of those points. You would think that this like Library of Alexandria effect where all of music or nearly all of it is available and how could that not be such a gift? But I think it sort of underscores the time shortage that we're always operating on. Mm -hmm. Or another way of putting that more bluntly is we're not going to get to listen to all the songs because we're going to die at some point. We don't live forever. Mm -hmm. I remember having this kind of realization as a kid walking into a library when I really started to fall in love with books. I had a strong sense of like, oh man, I'm not going to be able to read all the books in here because there are way more books than there are hours for me to read in my life. There's something going on there too with streaming services and everything that's at our fingertips. But I mean, you're right. There's confusion and gratitude, but then I think your friend's system is really cool because I'm even just thinking about Going back to tapes and even CDs with music that came in analog formats, especially tapes, it was enough of a pain to fast forward a song you didn't like that you would just yeah. listen to a whole record through, you know? And exactly. there was something to me about the ebb and flow and the rises and falls of moods throughout a record that if track four was one that you didn't really care about, it made track five all the better because you right. were looking forward to it. The other thing, too, is for every minute of a song, how many minutes do you think went into the making of the song? Yeah, that's a tough question because you have a range of people's process. You have someone like Leonard Cohen who will take years to write a song. And then you have someone like me who will be super ADD about it and write a song in like five minutes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and just like not want to go back and edit it, you know, just be like, oh, whatever, this is fun. That's a good segue to your songwriting process. I definitely wanted to pick your brain about that. So congratulations on Lava Lamp. You released an album a couple weeks ago. It's approximately 32 minutes long. I listened to it before our call today. I was really digging it. I only listened to it once, but now after hearing your friend's process, I want to listen to it again. Um, Luckily, I liked it on my first listen, so probably I'll like it even more on the second listen. I think the title track was probably my favorite song based on this first listening let's actually take a minute to share this with listeners so this is the beginning of lava lamp from jonah tolchin's new album
tell us about Lava Lamp? I'm always interested in album length, and I don't know if it was by design that this was about a half an hour long, or if that was just the kind of amount of material you had. Yeah, there's a few reasons for that. One of them has to do with people's attention span. A lot of artists will fight me on this. They'll say, who cares? It's part of the problem that people don't have long attention spans, and you shouldn't cater to people like that. I don't cater to people, but it's a good excuse to maybe have a shorter record at the same time, because it's actually, I think, better in a lot of ways to have a shorter record because you get to focus more on each individual song, especially if you don't have a big budget and time is money. So, you know, being able to do nine songs instead of 12 songs, that takes out a significant amount of cost and also stress because you have the time to really figure out what's the arrangement, go into the mixing process having less stuff and everything else. And just in terms of the overall record, this record has been done for like three years. Um, Oh, wow. Well, I shouldn't say done. We started working on it three years ago, and it didn't take much longer to finish it. I am currently in a place where the most exciting thing about the record to me is that it's out and I can start writing the next one. (laughs) But with that said, I am really proud of it, and I think... In a lot of ways, it's my best record, and it's also a step in the right direction for the kind of music that I actually enjoy playing live. I had been writing a lot of acoustic music and performing a lot of acoustic music for years, still doing some electric stuff, but it was more songwriter, more Americana acoustic based. And I got to tell you that that's just not for me in a live setting anymore. The thing that I fell in love with in terms of music in general, like if we go back and look at that Ronnie Earl story is electric guitar. That's where my love is. And when I listen to music, going back to that question as well, my favorite thing to listen to is electric guitar based music, stuff with really great solos or just really tasteful electric playing. I love acoustic music as well. And I probably listen to just as much of it. But the stuff that makes me really excited is that electric stuff. So this record was much more electric. And I think I wanted to break out of the Americana thing. So I think I probably at times went a little further away from it than I would like to do on my next record. You know, just digging up these old influences of when I was a kid of the Strokes and gorillas and alternative stuff i love that stuff but it's not really what i want to do moving forward i don't want to become like an indie or an alternative artist i don't like those boxes in general but i can definitely tell you that i don't see myself falling into that world and just living in it if i was going to fall into and live in any world it would be in more of a blues again electric guitar centered world which has been a through line but it's not been as big of what I want to do as what's coming next. Can you say more about what falling into a genre label could mean for the flow of your music and the way it interacts with listeners, but also for your sense of identity as a musician? Yeah, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind for myself is stagnation is death. And That's part of the reason I've always wanted to mix it up and do different things. With that said, 
somebody who becomes successful doing a certain thing, it can be really difficult to break out of it. And so part of my blessing is that I haven't become successful. <laughs> so I don't have to worry well, about that's it. debatable. Well, I could do whatever I want. And I'm not going to have quote unquote fans coming to me in like a Bob Dylan went electric moment because I don't really, I, <laughs> I don't even really have that many engaged fans. I have a lot of people that have listened to my music on Spotify, and that's probably my biggest feather in the hat. And then other than that, just kind of random people throughout the world who probably don't care if I change what I do. As opposed to, for an example, if Jason Isbell went like, like Electronica. Like people would freak <laughs> out and they would be like, yeah, what is right. but yeah, just in terms of changing horse in midstream, whatever that thing yep. goes, it is hard. And I felt like really trapped in the Americana world so much so to, to the point where I started to resent Americana music in general. There's so much great Americana music and there's the classics, which are kind of in a different category to me because they've just been around before that phrase really caught hold. I'm talking about people like John Prine and everyone else before this whole Americana thing became whatever it is now. And I'm not saying it's bad, but I'm just saying I don't want to be trapped in it. That's all. My friend Mike and I had a joke about a lot of the bands that came through Kitchen Sessions. I loved a lot of them, and I feel like I have a somewhat ambivalent sentiment like you do. A lot of the themes and tropes do get recycled. I think for an artist who's saying stagnation equals death, it could totally make sense. Anyway, the joke was, we said every band could be called Rustic Embers. Yes, um, <laughs> I like that. But no, I, I feel you on that. I really want to hear about touring. I'm sure you have some amazingly fun road stories. I'm sure you've also had some tough times on the road, just grinding. Tell us a little bit about your experiences touring over the years. Yeah, I mean, to be Honest, I always forget most of it because it's always so fast-paced. It's a blur. I, I oh, remember wow. being on tour with Dave Alvin, and we were—I want to say—somewhere in the South. We were just talking about what is this experience of touring like, and how sometimes it's—he it, was saying it's like a time machine, like you are just doing it, and time just moves really fast. But for everyone else at back home, it's moving different. And then you could come back home months later and people have literally died that you didn't even know about them passing. That's fascinating. Just, you know, restaurants that used to be there are gone. All kinds of things just moving differently, like almost going to space or something. And it's not even like, I'm not just talking about going on the road for a couple of weeks and then coming back. I'm talking about the lifestyle of just being on the move for years at a time. Because you go and you come back for a week or a few days or whatever, and you're just constantly going back and forth and you just don't notice things as much. So that's one thing I could say about it is uh, is the time travel aspect. Your story there perfectly encapsulates a kind of idea I recently learned about. I don't know if you've heard of it, La, La Durée. It's a no. French term that this philosopher, Henri Bergson, came up with. And it's the idea of subjective time. Objective time is the time of the clock that we all refer to. But subjective time is the, is the sense of your own kind of personal clock turning at its own rate. Bergson married someone, I forget who, who was related to Proust, the celebrated French novelist of In Search of Lost Time. 
And I guess that theme heavily influenced that slow, meditative book. I don't know if you've read it. But anyway, I just think it's like an incredibly cool concept, the idea that we all have these subjective clocks and road time versus objective time. That's really cool, man. I think about that a lot. And I've actually kind of tested it out on the road. And this is kind of a a little bit of a darker story, but I was in a car accident, I want to say 2014 or 15, and it was a pretty bad accident. Luckily, nobody was hurt, but we were going 70 on the mass pike, and it was like four-lane road, and it was like 70 to zero, like up against the concrete guardrail, like doing like a 180. It was kind of traumatizing, and right after that, I had to go on a tour in Europe for like a month and be sitting in the back of a van, a sprinter van with no control of the car. And I kind of dissociated. I I remember having the thought where I was like, I'm going to make this tour be one day. Even though it was like 30 days, I was like, I'm going to make this tour one day long. And I think I like somehow blocked out like, and I now regret it. Because I was just kind of, you know, traumatized from that. And I had this great opportunity to do that. I've had luckily a lot of opportunities to go over there. But I don't remember anything about that tour. I don't know if I dissociated or what happened, but I just remember it was really fast. So it's kind of an interesting thing how you can mess with your thoughts like that. But I don't think I'd recommend that. I regretted it afterwards. (laughs) But in terms of being on the road at the beginning, really liked it. And then I slowly started to be like, I don't know, this is kind of a lot, just not being able to have a routine and being on and off all the time and feeling ungrounded. And so for a while, honestly, until this last month or two, for many years, I wanted to just stop doing it. I wanted to keep playing music, but I was like, the touring part is not working for me. Hmm. Um, And I think it had a large part to do with that I wasn't playing the right kind of music for myself. I was trapped in that what I call the Americana ghetto, and I didn't want to do it. It was like pulling teeth for me. And I did have nerves, because I, I do get the anticipation thing, like right before you have to do something. Sure. It could happen even a week before, because once I'm on stage, I'm fine. But just the looking towards it, knowing it's coming, but it's not here yet, like yeah. rose off my stomach and all this stuff. And I was like, man, I'm just so tired of this and not getting paid well to do it. So... I was just kind of having a hard time with that and thinking, all right, this is it. And I had a post-it note sitting on my desk right above my windowsill for the last year. And it said, what is keeping you here? Why are you still doing this? Find an answer Mm -hmm. by this date. And on this last tour, because of this new record, I had the opportunity to play this different kind of music that was more electric. And I had these two guys that are like the coolest dudes, some of the best musicians I've ever played with, and the band just worked so well. And the combination, I think, of playing the right kind of music and being with those guys, it just made me fall in love with it again. And so my answer to that question I wrote on that post-it note, what is keeping me here? What's keeping me doing this? It's now been discovered over the last couple of months of touring, and I feel really grateful that it's super cool that you have unlocked a new way forward with live performance speaking of which do you have upcoming dates i do have some dates coming up i'm opening up for richard thompson here in new jersey in september oh cool wow and then i if all goes according to plan 
a festival in Montana in September. And then I'm playing a show with this really great blues band, GA20, in Fall River at the Narrow Center in, in October. That's going to be cool. And there's other things that are kind of bubbling up, but I'm looking for a new agent right now. So we're, we've got to figure all that out. You've had a remarkable way of teeing up my questions this whole discussion. So thanks for doing that. I I was just going to ask you about the sort of leveling up process over the years in terms of both the production value of your music and also as musician trying to market your stuff to get it out there to touring in places that could pay better or lead to better exposure. How has it gone for you from picking up a guitar and then recording songs and then getting into that world of manipulating sound and editing it and so on and so forth. Yeah, I have a few thoughts about that. But the first thing I want to say has to do with that feeling when you're just starting out or you've been playing for 20 years or more. And it's not something that you do for work. It's something that you do because you love it, whether it's a hobby or whatever. And I got to tell you that to me, that is the heart of it all. And it's so easy to lose sight of that. I'll give you some examples. Like one time somebody walked up to me at a show and they were just saying like, my son plays at the local bar, but he's not really a musician like what you're doing or whatever. And I just remember thinking, that's fucking awesome. Like I want to do that again. And then afterwards I had actually started doing a gig here in Princeton at this ramen place. And we just wouldn't tell anybody about it. We just showed up and we did it. And it was awesome. That's great. And that feeling of just playing music because you love it. And also the beginner's mind thing of not not feeling like an expert in anything or whatever. It just leaves all the possibilities open and makes curiosity and excitement that much more fresh. So to me, having that approach is central and so everything that i learn i try to bring it back to that now because for a while i felt like the more i knew the more i got away from that and Mm. coincidentally the less fun it became to create in some ways so i want to start there but remember using maybe it was garage band but before I even played an instrument, just like looping samples that were in the the software. And it was so much fun. So that's where I started. And from there, I remember getting an interface and doing my first EP, like in my high school girlfriend's parents' house (laughs) and just having the microphone and having like a crappy kick drum and whatever. And so I just played all the instruments, like a bass that you had to jiggle the chord just right. That was really awesome, just doing all that myself. And then after that, like I went to an, to the next sort of, you could say, level or phase with an actual recording studio, a smaller recording studio in, in New England and like having that experience, which was so fun and cool to just be around all the gear and have someone who actually knew what they were doing, making stuff sound really good. And then Throughout my experiences, I would always just pay attention to what people are doing. I'm not an engineer, but I enjoy seeing like what is the gear, what kind of mic are they using on this guitar, and where are they placing it, what compressor are they using, whatever. So 
I've paid attention to a lot of the technical things and I've had a, a lot of opportunity to work in some really incredible historic studios like in Fame and Muscle Shoals and the Sound City Studio in Van Nuys, which is now, it became Fairfax and something else. And my friend Sheldon Gomberg's studio out in Los Angeles, who's this incredible engineer and one of my mentors, Grammy award-winning guy. And I've had all these great experiences. And I feel like, again, I'm trying to remember more and more what is it all about in terms of the experience of playing music rather than the technical things. Because at the end of the day, if you just bring the right people into the room who know what they're doing, including the engineer, from a production standpoint, the work kind of figures itself out, I think. And I've heard stories like this from other people who have worked with like T-Bone Burnett and Joe Henry and producers of that ilk who wow. have said the same thing. Not to undercut what they're doing and the work that they put in because a lot of it is pre-production, but if they get the right people in the room, they can just sit on the couch all day. I don't do that. I like to play on pretty much all the tracks like as a guitar player and just be able to kind of conduct the band in that sense. But yeah, for me, the biggest thing is just bringing the right people into the room. That's what I've learned. And also, I don't like showing people songs before we record because I like that first instinct thing to happen. Yeah. One last thing I want to mention is that I'm writing a screenplay right now, and that's been keeping me sane as well. <laughs> what is it about? <laughs> well, it's basically a comedy from the same cloth of like Superbad and Anchorman and Step Brothers and even like Pineapple Express. And the premise is that this guy who's a fat stoner, is married to this beautiful woman who's way out of his league. And she dies. You find out that she died from this tumor that was suppressing her ability to see people's physical appearance accurately. So basically she was with him. And that's a whole other thing. But she dies, and her final wishes are to have her ashes scattered on Mount Kilimanjaro. And so it's like him and his best friend, um, <laughs> like climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. That sounds amazing. Thank you. Yeah, we'll see what happens. Well, Jonah, I really enjoyed this conversation. I have a lot more questions written down. Perhaps sometime down the road, we could do a part two if you're interested. That sounds great, man. Thanks for having me. Of course. Any final thoughts to conclude? Man, I mean, we've talked about a lot of things. The only thing I'll say is that some of the answers that I've given to these questions could sound negative or like I'm feeling jaded or whatever. But the truth is that I don't feel that way. I think about it more as having a sharper perspective on reality and mm. being willing to see things as they are, rather than seeing things through this lens that could distort the way things are and kind of get you into trouble with yourself. And I kind of strive to see those realities. And I want to see this business turn into something that when I go and speak at a school that I would recommend for kids to get involved with it. That's my hope for the future of this industry. I don't know how that's going to happen. Some things have to change. And I think that if anyone's listening to this, who's like inspired to do stuff with legislation or get involved on the legal side of the music business, or just generally trying to shape it from a business side, it's definitely needed. I don't know what the answers are. I don't know that anybody does for how to get it to a place where artists can actually make a living again. Right. But 
I hope that it happens. And again, just the last thing I want to say is really that having fun, like the, the hobby of playing music, like that's everything. And if and if you lose that, then you've lost everything, I mm. think. So I just want to remind people if there's musicians listening, don't lose that. Hope, do whatever you have to do to find it. And that's what I'm constantly doing every day. And I have to keep working hard to do that. Yeah, thank you for that closing note. That's great. Well, listen, Jonah, again, this is amazing. Thanks for your great work. And I hope to see you and talk to you again soon. Awesome. Thanks, Pat. All right, take care, Jonah. Bye. Right, take care. Bye. Hope you enjoyed listening to the conversation as much as I liked conducting it. I wanted to share some, quote, research I did. Uh, I'm not sure if I could call it capital R research. I'm not an economist. I'm not a journalist. That said, I thought I could spare you the effort of Googling as much as I did. I read about a dozen articles, and I thought I would gather that information together and share it in what is hopefully a clear and cohesive way. So Jonah and I didn't really talk too much about the fact that the musician is the foundation of the music industry, uh, but erected upon that base are numerous layers, and not surprisingly, they're extracting money, sometimes needlessly, sometimes exorbitantly. So I'm just going to share some of what I learned from a few articles, and all of the links are in the show notes if you'd like to read them for yourselves. One thing that's happening of late in the megastar arena is that musicians have been selling their catalogs. Catalogs are considered long-duration assets. According to a Goldman Sachs report, musicians and songwriters have been motivated to sell rights to future cash flows from their work in response to losing tour income during the pandemic. Tax considerations have been another motivator. Tours are back now, uh, for the most part, although I was going to go to the Ezra Furman show at Webster Hall last week, and it was canceled because I think they have COVID. Anyway, Bob Dylan sold the publishing rights of his songwriting catalog for around $400 million to Universal Music Group in December of 2020. Bruce Springsteen sold his recordings, master recordings and publishing rights to Sony for $550 million in 2021. And similarly, gigantic deals were struck with Paul Simon, Tim McGraw, and Justin Timberlake, to name a few. So that's all happening in this world that I'm assuming you're as removed from as I am. But when you think about working musicians, that is, musicians who are trying to pay the bills, uh, there's a totally different story going on. And I feel like that is summarized well by... Uh, a musician who was quoted in an Indie Week article I read. The musician's name is Joel Jerome, and he says, Our work and our labor is what drives this industry, and we seem to be benefiting the least. 
As the music economy is growing and growing, artists' incomes aren't growing at all. Well, that seems pretty unfair, and certainly explains why Jonah suggests that it would be extremely useful to have some smart, motivated music fans getting involved on the legislative side of things. So what does it mean that the industry is growing? Well, let me share some of what I learned about that. So songs tend to be created with two copyrights, one for the master recording, which is often owned by a record label, and one for the song publishing. Recording artists get a share of royalties from the master recordings, and song publishing rights are often split between the writers and publishing companies. All of this is from the Barron's article in the show notes. Now, Spotify's royalty payments increased to $7 billion as of 2021, up from $5 billion in 2020. But instead of paying artists directly, Spotify pays rights holders, that is record labels, distributors, or others, who artists allow to put their music on the platform and who in turn pay the artists with the money earned on the streaming service. The streaming service said that for the first time, over 1,000 artists made more than a million dollars through royalties on its platform. Now, it's interesting when you look at the language on Spotify and Apple, they're quick to emphasize people who have made over a million dollars, and you'll note just how small that number is when you really think about it. Over a thousand artists. Assume that's 1,100, 1,200 versus the millions and millions and millions of artists who are posting their music and are just scraping by. Spotify says it paid out over a billion dollars to publishing rights holders and four billion to major record labels. Uh, also, that 28% of the artists who self-distribute on the platform, meaning they're not attached to a record label, generated over $10,000. I'm not sure if that's meant to be good or bad. It means 72% of artists who are putting their work on Spotify earned less than $10,000. So presumably, all of those people have other work to make their money. And just to give you context about how this works at the song level, on Spotify, it takes roughly 250 to 315 streams. A stream is listening to a song for at least 30 seconds for an artist to earn $1. I guess Apple Music does a little bit better in this regard. I'm not a user, uh, but it pays an average of one cent per stream. Part of the problem with this entire industry, according to Alex Maolo, a musician and writer based in North Carolina, is that a significant part of streaming's payout problems may not even lie with the platforms themselves, but with the music industry's own tangled webs. File sharing and streaming, he says, are merely symptoms of an industry that has repeatedly failed musicians. The record industry is glad to blame the decline on Napster and now on Spotify because it lets them off the hook. Maybe I should have Alex on the show to elaborate on this, but there's more I learned from Reddit from people who seem to know what they're talking about. Take that with whatever sized grain of salt you think is appropriate for a Reddit post. Someone writes, The problem is that the kinds of deals and behavior engaged in by very large corporations approaches the limits of collusion and oligopolistic, monopolistic behavior. Acquiring smaller services and then making bundle deals with record distributors where the artist doesn't actually collect a royalty per se, but a fraction of a fraction of a flat fee. And instead of enacting antitrust legislation to limit the Goliath power of these tech companies, the recording industry has a long history of lobbying government to create barriers such as the ambiguously worded provisions of the DMCA, or the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. And this person goes on to say that, quote, I'm not an advocate of piracy. I believe entirely that piracy is antithetical to supporting artists. But it's very interesting that this is one of the rare cases 
in which the steep criminal penalties that exist are largely lobbied for and tilted in the favor of protecting corporations, and there's no counterbalancing force in the form of specific antitrust legislation to balance the interests of independent labels and artists whom copyright law is, in theory, supposed to protect equally. But it doesn't because seeking even statutory damages depends largely on being able to afford a good lawyer. So it sounds like the industry is a mess, and in the short run, getting money into the pockets of musicians seems to be a great way to go. Buy their merch, buy their records, go to their concerts. And again, not that all of that money would go directly to them, but it's clearly not easy to make a living as a musician. So it's something worth thinking about, and so many people absolutely love music. I I can't imagine living in a world without it. So the least we could do is to begin to have conversations about how to reconcile some of the grievances of the industry out of which so much of the music we love comes. There is a bright side of sorts. Uh, A North Carolina-based musician named Al Riggs says that platforms like Spotify afford a lot of freedom. You can put out whatever you want, whenever you want it. Recording and producing music has gotten cheaper. There are some amazing tools individuals can use. You don't necessarily need to rent out an expensive studio. But I guess there's a dark side even to that bright side, which is that it's almost necessary to put your music on Spotify or iTunes, just as I'm putting this podcast on Spotify and iTunes, because it has more of a professional ring than, as Al Rigg says, I'll send you some WAV files via Dropbox. That's a, that's a lot of effort that is a surefire way to not reach a mass audience, which many of us would like to do, or at least have a, a niche-dedicated audience. Joel Jerome, the aforementioned musician, has about 16,000 monthly listeners. That's unique listeners in a 28-day period. And he said in the IndieWire article that I quoted earlier that he makes about $100 per three months on Spotify. 16,000 monthly listeners. You read that number and you think, oh, this guy's doing all right. But he's making 400 bucks a year on Spotify. That's about 15% of my rent in New York. Not a survivable amount of money by any stretch of the imagination anywhere, not just in an expensive place like New York. Speaking of place, it does seem to be a little easier or better to be a musician in other parts of the world. In Ireland, there was something passed recently called a basic income for the arts. According to Eamon Ford, a music business journalist for Forbes, it's a pioneering scheme that is designed to get the arts back on its feet after the impact of the pandemic. The Irish government has clearly seen the arts as an area that is essential to invest in and support in terms of both its contribution to the national economy as well as its importance for Ireland's export power. No other government in Europe has a funding scheme that is comparable The move by the Irish government might not be a Medici-style patronage model, but it offers a template for other governments to potentially follow. Elsewhere, in the Netherlands, it's reportedly a bit easier to get grants for musicians and other artists, and in France, there's something called intermittency, which is technically an unemployment status, but it's uh, well known that artists can avail themselves of it to get some government funding. Now, I know several people in my life, I'm one of them, who have other ways of paying the bills and saving for retirement outside of their creative work. And sometimes critics say, 
hey, you can just get a job and in your free time make money, work really hard at it, and then if you get good enough, you can quit your day job. This viewpoint doesn't seem entirely wrong, but I don't think it takes into account the subjective reality of many people whose skill, passion, interest, and knowledge all center on music. Again, this is an area that everyone values so much. Music has been around for somewhere between 40 and 60,000 years. Think about that. Neanderthal flutes far predate literacy. Literacy is 5,000 years old from Sumeria, and we were making and blowing on flutes tens of thousands of years before that. It speaks to the, the depth and the wonder and the essential nature of music in our lives. Meanwhile, corporations are only about 700 years old. It's still pretty old. I guess the first one was a mining company in Sweden in 1347. But nevertheless, I think there's something about this layering of depth that speaks to the essential and perhaps eternal value of these practices. And the modern world seems to flip the stack, where the, the youngest and newest creation, this corporation, seems to be the entity that's getting all the benefit, whereas the simple act of music made by the musician is being exploited. There's so much to learn about this topic. Interestingly, I couldn't find too many books that presented a straightforward history of the music business. When you search online, you'll find How to Make It in the New Music Business, or The Plain and Simple Guide to Music Publishing, or Start Your Music Business, How to Earn Loyalties, Own Your Music, Sample Music, Protect Your Name, and Structure Your Music Business. A lot of how-to books. There's one book by Donald S. Passman, Uh, The 10th edition was released in 2019. It's called All You Need to Know About the Music Business. This seems useful. It's a 500-plus page book for those interested in taking the deep dive. Anyway, I'd just finally like to share some comments about the nature of pay when it comes to live music. I've been going to concerts for over 20 years now. It's an activity I've always really loved. So many memorable nights of my life have been spent at concerts. After talking to Jonah and thinking about my history of going to see live music, I became curious about what the average pay rate is per musician at various venues. I didn't find any particularly authoritative information on this topic. Once again, I'm quoting someone from Reddit who claims to have been in the business. If anyone knows better, please email me pat.bubul at gmail.com is the address you can best reach me at. According to this person, a small venue pays about $200 per show with a $20 a day per diem. For mid-sized tours, the pay is often by the day, not per show. I guess maybe sometimes there are radio appearances in the morning and then a show in the evening. So the pay covers a span of a day. Musicians could be making anywhere between $200 and $450 a day with a $30-ish per diem. And then when you get into the amphitheater, arena, stadium size, musicians can be earning anywhere between $500 and $1,000 per day with a $60 per diem. So you're probably wondering, what is a small-size venue? What's a mid-size venue? What's a large venue? Great question. It seems, once again, that there's no authoritative answer to the question, but I think a small venue is roughly 
less than a thousand capacity. Mid-sized is between one and four thousand. And then there's an interesting gap between the four thousand capacity venues and the much bigger venues of about twenty thousand. Um, of all the concerts I've been to in Boston, New York, and Philadelphia, I looked up the capacity of the venues, and uh, none of them were in that range. They were all smaller than four or five thousand, or really big. So just to give you a sample, in Philadelphia, two small venues that I've been to several times. One is the Trocadero, rest in peace, capacity of 1,200, and the Theater of the Living Arts, capacity 1,000. So they're on the smaller side. Um, In Boston, the venues that I often frequented included Brighton Music Hall, which is very small, capacity of 340. Sinclair has a capacity of 525. Middle East Downstairs is about the same, 575. And the Paradise has a capacity of 933. It's interesting to think of Paradise as being three times the size of Brighton Music Hall, but these places are both considered, quote, small venues. Uh, the mid-sized venues in Boston would be the Orpheum, with a capacity of 2,700, and House of Blues, around 2,200. In New York, some of the small venues are the Bell House, capacity 500, Brooklyn Made, new venue in Bushwick as of last year, capacity 500, and the Williamsburg Music Hall, capacity of 650. Some of the mid-sized venues are Webster Hall, 1,500, Carnegie Hall, 2,800, and Terminal 5 can host 3,000 people. What about the big venues, you wonder? Well, TD Garden in Boston hosts 20,000, Fenway 38,000. In New York, Madison Square Garden is the same as the TD Garden 20,000. And Yankee Stadium is gigantic, can have 50,000 people at a concert. Big venue from my hometown where I grew up, the Pavilion, originally known as the Montage Mountain Performing Arts Center, Uh, It's also quite big, can hold 18,000 people, which is a little bit less than the Boston and New York Gardens. I should mention, with all these numbers, that there's, of course, so much unpaid labor that goes into making music. People are not getting paid, as far as I know, to spend many hours on their digital audio workstations. And there are all sorts of performance on social media, uh, as well as house shows that are often about gaining exposure I think it's very frustrating how exposure seems to be this intermediate currency that is always receiving emphasis. But as far as I know, exposure itself can't buy me a sandwich at the bodega. People still need dollars in this world. So give some of them to musicians. Support indie labels. Support musicians. Thank you for listening. Hope you have a great day.